Well, hello, world. I am Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal speaking to you from our wonderful Orbit Audio in Seattle's Pioneer Square, and so happy to welcome you to our second Stir the Pod podcast, where we have one goal, which is to get deep into the news and ideas that really matter and lift up the voices of people working for a progressive democracy and, well, to stir things up, because that's what we do. Um, and on our first podcast, we were joined by two incredible women, activists and leaders, Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, and Linda Sarsour, one of the co-chairs of the Women's March. And so if you missed that episode, I hope you go back and listen, because those women are truly leading the way. Today, we're going to spend most of the show talking about how we take back our country in November, what has been happening in states like Virginia, Wisconsin, and Washington, and what this means for progressive politics. And to do that, I'm going to have two fantastic guests on, a longtime friend, one of the smartest progressive political minds in the country, John Nichols, who is the national affairs correspondent for The Nation, who covers these campaigns as a reporter. And then I am going to talk to a truly inspiring woman, a history-making leader, um, somebody who won in uh, this last election, Elizabeth Guzman, a fellow immigrant who represents Virginia's 31st district in the Virginia State House. She defeated an eight-term Republican incumbent and ran as an unabashed progressive. She's also the one who recently gave the Spanish language response to Donald Trump's State of the Union. Um, I am telling you, you got to stick around for that interview. It is fantastic. And you'll want to download part two of this podcast for that interview. But first, let's just talk about the news. And I'm joined here by Ansel Hurst, one of my staff here in Seattle, who's helping to produce this podcast. Thank you, Ansel. Um, and also a former wonderful reporter for our very uh, popular alternative paper here in Seattle called The Stranger. So Ansel, welcome. Thanks, Pramila. You know, I've always wanted to do a radio show, and I always wanted to have a sideman. So you're it. I'm privileged to do this with you. (laughs) Um, So let's start with some news. Um, You know, we just came off last week of a very difficult week where we had a big budget showdown. Yeah, and you were voting up until 3, 4, 5 a.m.? Yeah, we started voting at 3 a.m. on Thursday night. Well, I guess it was Friday morning, and we went until 5.30 um, that morning. And it was a, uh, I gotta say, it was a rough week. And as listeners may know, this was the fifth continuing resolution that the House was voting on to keep government going for these tiny short periods of time. Why? Because Republicans, even though they control the House, the Senate and the White House, have been unable to come up with a budget that their caucus will support. And Democrats, I'm proud to say, have been pretty united in saying, look, you've got the majority. If you can't even keep your caucus together to vote for your own horrible, in my opinion, budget, then it's clear that you can't govern. And if you can't govern on your own, then you need us to help pass a budget. And you're going to have to talk to us about what our priorities are and include those priorities in the budget. And so we've been saying all along for the last several months as these continuing resolutions have come forward that we want funding for the children's health insurance program. We want our community health centers funded. We want funding for opioids, you know, for the crisis that's going on. And yes, we want a permanent solution for the 800,000 dreamers across this country who face deportation. And let's be clear about why, because Donald Trump 
made them deportable when he rescinded the DACA program, Deferred Action for Childhood uh, Arrivals. So you may remember, and our listeners may remember, that during the last negotiations where Democrats held the line, ultimately the Republicans did put in funding for the CHIP program, and they tried to bargain that against everything else. They said that our voting against that, because all these other things weren't in there, was somehow holding um, these chip kids hostage, but Democrats in the House forced Republicans to come up with their the votes that they needed for that package since it didn't have our priorities in it. And we stayed united. Um, and then it went to the Senate and Democrats in the Senate stayed united and it forced Republicans to take the unprecedented move of in this in this cycle anyway, of shutting down the government. Republicans shut down the government because they were so cussed that they refused to negotiate with Democrats to get our votes. And in the end, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell agreed to a what he assured us would be a fair process that would allow a bipartisan bill on the Dreamers to come to the Senate floor for a vote. And so the Senate then agreed to continue the budget negotiations on the issues that Democrats cared about, agreed that there would be a path forward on the Dreamers, and um, ended up ending the shutdown. This vote... Um, unfortunately, uh, came about in part because the Senate agreement did not contain anything for the House. There was no agreement from Paul Ryan around the Dreamers. And so when the chips fell last week, the Senate negotiated a budget deal that actually did include many of the Democratic priorities, but they didn't get an agreement from Speaker Ryan that he would utilize a similar fair process to bring a Dreamer bill to the floor. And in the meantime, you've got President Trump sitting there in the White House continuing to push for an immigration bill that contains some non-starter provisions around ending legal immigration as we know it, putting $25 billion into border security, um, getting rid of the diversity visa. I mean, he's effectively trying to hold dreamers hostage in order to build this pointless border wall, right? That's exactly right. You know, he's he, some of the newspaper articles and TV stations were sort of trying to make it seem like he was magnanimous. Actually, he was trying to make it seem like he was magnanimous, that he was going to offer a path to citizenship for 1.8 million dreamers. But I've been very clear in saying, no, that was in exchange for this moving target that now has ended up being end legal immigration. End legal immigration cut the numbers of legal immigrants to the United States by 22 million people over the next five years and the diversity visa uh, program. And, you know, they use a horrible, demeaning and false term that they, they, they call it chain migration. I went on Fox News with Tucker Carlson, and our listeners can go on our Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts and see that, where I just challenged that and said, there is no such thing as chain migration. They're talking about family reunification. And that's why they don't want to say it, because otherwise, they're going to have to admit that they don't want to keep families together. So um, that's sort of, you know, the proposal that that Trump has been pushing. And this is really a non-starter. I just have to say that. So It is also, I think, completely insulting of Paul Ryan um, to say that he's not going to bring a bill to the floor unless Donald Trump approves of it. What he wants to do is bring this terrible bill that we call the Goodlatte bill because it's sponsored by Chairman Goodlatte of the House Judiciary Committee where I sit. Um, And, 
you know, this is ridiculous, right? Because the House is a separate body. The president doesn't have his own vote in our chamber. We're supposed to pass legislation. And then he has the opportunity to sign it or not sign it. But he can't be the one to dictate what we bring to the floor. And so you may have seen um, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi took to the floor for eight hours in a House filibuster, the longest speech since the early 1900s. And because many of us who care so deeply about this issue realize that this budget deal was sort of the last leverage that we have um, before this deadline when when dreamers are going to start being deported. And why? Because Republicans would not be able to get the votes from their side for massive increases in spending that they themselves were insisting on, by the way. They wanted a $60 billion increase in defense spending, which then Democrats said, well, we don't really believe in that. We don't think you, we support we support defense. But you, that's, I was going to say you don't support the troops. <laughs> right. That's that's the thing that they always say. Right. They don't you don't support the troops. But you have to understand that we have put so much money into defense spending. And um, it is, by the way, the Pentagon is the only federal agency that does not even get an audit. And so you may have seen last week. $700 million went missing in one of the defense contracts. Nobody's tracking that, and yet we're going to put another $60 billion in. And here's the other thing. I always say troops don't just care about the money that, frankly, doesn't even go to them. It goes to the defense contractors. They also care about their families. They care about transportation. They care about the roads. They care about the schools. They want their families to have health care. You know, they care about domestic spending. So it's just, it's a really false choice. But in the end, Democrats said, well, Look, if you're insisting on a military spending increase, then we at least want to see that domestic spending increase by the same percentage, which we call parity. And um, ultimately, House leadership and a majority of the caucus voted no on the bill that the Senate passed because we wanted the same thing that Mitch McConnell had given to Senate Democrats, which was a process to bring a bipartisan bill to the floor. Um you know, there was a term that's been used a lot is called Queen of the Hill, which I didn't know until I got to Congress. So I figured maybe people out there would want to know what that is. No idea. Right. It basically means that you bring all of the bills that are around a particular issue to the floor and you put them all up for a vote. And whichever one manages to get a majority of the votes is the one that wins. So it's called Queen of the Hill. Okay. And that's what we've been saying is, okay, fine, put up your terrible good lap bill, but put up the Herd Aguilar bill, which is a bipartisan bill around the DREAM Act, a very narrow uh, addressing of the DREAMers and of border, um, but first through a border assessment, because... It doesn't make sense to put more money into the border if you haven't really done a full assessment. So that's what we've been looking for, just an assurance that that Paul Ryan would bring a bipartisan bill to the floor. He refused to give us that. And so House leadership and two-thirds of our caucus voted against it. But Republicans were able to get a significantly larger number than expected of their own caucus to vote for that bill. And in the end, they did peel off 73 Democrats who also voted for the bill, and it passed. Now, Paul Ryan is saying that he will bring an immigration bill to the floor right away, and the Senate will start their process this week. So that's kind of where we are. So that was a tough week. It was a tough week, you know, and I think that we'll have to see what happens here. And and it's been tough, you know, because I think that there are a lot of people that are disappointed that um, we didn't hold together. 
um, and deny them the uh, the leverage, the only leverage that we had. And frankly, I'm disappointed in that too. And I'm happy that our House leadership, um, you know, did vote no, but we had a lot of Democrats who voted for it. And, you know, to be fair to them, there were a lot of good things in the bill. Our community health centers were funded and opioids and um, CHIP was funded. But the reality is we have so little leverage as a minority party, and I do think we have to learn to use it better. But, you know, now it is clear that the blame for not bringing up a bill for a vote is on Paul Ryan. This he, is all him. And he says he supports Dreamers, but, you know, thousands of Dreamers are losing their status every day, and that March 5th deadline is coming. Yeah. He says he supports Dreamers. He said he would bring a bill to the floor. But honestly, you know, I think what he's going to do is bring a bad bill to the floor, um, say that you're going to give a 1.8 million folks a pathway to citizenship, but then we're going to deport all of their families and end legal immigration. That's not really a solution. But what he wants us to do is probably vote against it, which, you know, I imagine most Democrats would vote against it. And then he can say, oh, Democrats voted against Dreamers. But I got to believe that certainly Dreamers and our progressive community, immigrant community across the country, um, understands that that's not a trade-off we can make. We can't trade one family's pain for another family's gain. That's not how we, that's not how we do it. That's and and we need to keep our progressive movement together to really fight for, um, you know, for a solution for these dreamers, but also for immigration reform in general. So it's tough, right? Okay, Ansel, it's now time to get to our guest, to the blue wave that is sweeping the country. Is it real? Can it stay? What's going on? How do we make it happen? From a line from Jesus Christ, Superstar, the musical that I used to love when I was younger. Uh, What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. Um, That's what we're going into right now. And joining us now by phone is my first fantastic, brilliant guest, John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine. John is the author of numerous books, including most recently, Horseman of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. And he's a co-founder of media reform network Free Press and truly one of the most brilliant political commentators. In my opinion, John, it is great to have you on Stir the Pot. It is a total pleasure to be with you, and, and uh, especially talking about the topics we'll be talking about today. Well, I tell you, I got to say, I just get so excited reading just the headlines of your articles, and I hope everybody that's listening subscribes to The Nation magazine, because I really think you get some of the most um, informative, educational but also insightful and incisive reporting in the country. But here are just a couple of your recent headlines. 35 and counting, exclamation point, Democrats flip another legislative, uh, Republican legislative seat. Um, Another one, the Trump effect helps Democrats pull off a surprise win in Wisconsin. Here's another one, Democratic socialism is having a very good year at the ballot box. And uh, last one, Democrats can win in Alabama and everywhere. So, John, I think I want to start by just having you tell us actually about Wisconsin, your state, a little watch Senate seat. You came into the Progressive Caucus several weeks ago. You talked to us about what happened there. And I think it's one of the least reported races in the country and really, really instructive because it's right there in the heart of Trump country. So tell us about that well, race. That's a perfect way to, to start. And let me um, 
offer you this notion. With all the headlines that you just ran down are headlines that anyone could cover. Any reporter could cover, any journalist could. But the challenge is that most of our media doesn't cover politics in America. Most of our media covers politics in a few blocks of Washington, D.C. Yeah. And obviously, Washington's in America. There's no doubt of that. But it's <laughs> Sometimes you wonder, portion. though, don't you? <laughs> it's frustrating at times. Uh, and I certainly wish that Washington had the same voting rights as the rest of America. Yeah. I uh, could send a senator and, or two senators and a member of Congress to have voting power in Congress. But here's the big deal. Um, when you go out into America and you just look at the top line, uh, you know, the, the kind of biggest story that everybody in Washington's paying attention to, you don't see the reality on the ground. And the reality on the ground, if you pay attention to it, always gives you powerful signals. The most powerful signal in a series of recent special elections, uh, and these are elections held to fill vacancies in state legislative seats, many of which, by the way, are as big or at least comparable in some states to congressional districts. And what's happening is that in districts that Donald Trump won overwhelmingly in 2016, and that Republicans have sometimes held for decades, Democrats are winning. And they're not just cautious, you know, apologetic, Republican-like Democrats. The people who are winning in an awfully lot of these districts are very progressive. And we're going to talk about that piece for sure, because I think that we're pushing back on that. But in Wisconsin, this is not even I mean, you all in Wisconsin and the Democratic Party in general weren't necessarily thinking that this was going to be a winnable race. Right. I know Mark Pocan, our colleague, has said, yeah, I pretty much, you know, I wasn't even following it. And he's on top of everything in in the state. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, Wisconsin has had uh, a rough ride. It's a traditionally progressive state that over the last uh, 10 years, eight to 10 years, has seen Republicans come in. They won a wave election in 2010, and they parlayed that into a lot of power, uh, bringing in a lot of outside money and things like that, but also drawing the legislative district lines, gerrymandering them in a way where it was very unlikely that they were ever going to lose. And so people looked at this open seat in western Wisconsin, and they just said, you know, it's it's nice to imagine that a Democrat could win, but it's just unlikely. Uh, Trump had won it by a, a landslide. Uh, and then the sitting state senator had just been reelected before she stepped down. But 26 percent, you know, she had a 26 wow. point lead. Wow. So it's really Republican turf and it's very rural and, you know, kind of classic space where you didn't think much could happen. The Democrats got a candidate out there. She was a local school board member and uh, a medical examiner, a real you know, active woman in the community, but not somebody who had ever run for partisan office before, not a big prominent name person or something like that. The Republican candidate was a sitting state representative who had just been reelected to his seat within the district, who was very prominent, who had lots more money. And so off they went. And what was fascinating was that to the very end the assumption was the Republican would win, but it didn't turn out that way. Uh, the Democratic candidate, this woman who was a member of a school board who ran a very smart, very progressive campaign on a whole host of issues, uh, didn't just win by a little. 
she won by 11 points. Wow. So, so, so that's a 37-point swing. Is that right? 26? You are good at math. 26 and 11? I didn't even yep. practice that. But I, I remember that it was over a 30-point swing. And, and yep. what were the issues? You said she, was, she ran on a pretty progressive platform. What, what were the issues that she was talking about? Sure. Uh, public education. Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, like many of these governors who won in 2010, the Republican wave governors, very, very tough on public education, very anti-union Walker has been. Mm-hmm. And this candidate, Kathy Schachner, she ran as a, a friend of unions. She ran with union support and talking about how valuable they were. She also talked a lot about rural schools uh, and how they're harmed when you do education cuts. She talked about rural broadband and the need to really invest in, in small towns and make sure that they're connected into the digital future. And on top of all this, though, at, at the core of it was a recognition that government needs to do some things mm-hmm. that, you know, you don't just keep beating up on government all the time, that you have to accept that government is needed for public education, for public services, uh, for uh, broadband, things like that. So she put all these messages down. She's pro-choice. She's, you know, sympathetic to diversity, equality, you know, all the things that uh, that you would, would want to see in a candidate. But then here's the final twist of it. And uh, she didn't pull her punches on Donald Trump. She said, you know, yeah, it's a state race. I'm not running against Donald Trump. But she made it clear that, you know, she's she's not part of this thing. She's got a real problem with what's going on. And it's interesting just to note the timing. Her election, she was she won this race four days before the second women's march. Wow. And if you look at the data from the district, what you're going to find is that uh, there's an awfully lot of evidence that it, uh, women turned out. Yep. And a lot of women, uh, some who hadn't voted in the past, some who maybe even had voted Republican in the past, and they provided a tremendous base of support. And so it was a, it was a remarkable win. It sent a shockwave through the state of Wisconsin and nationally. Uh, Scott Walker, the Republican governor, tweeted, this is a wake-up call for Republicans. Because basically, and I'm paraphrasing now, if they can win in this district in Wisconsin, Democrats could win anywhere. So, you know, one of the things that I've been um, fighting back on a lot, and I think you all have as well, is, is you know, there was a narrative right after Trump won last year, or I guess it's now, 20, you know, more than a year ago, um, that this was this was about white working class versus identity politics with identity politics in quotes being, you know, talking about LGBT issues or immigrant rights issues, things like that. And I've always believed that that's actually a false dichotomy, that really what we're talking about is working class folks across the country who had either felt like they had been forgotten or that, you know, or that neither party had really been tending to the inequality, the inequity of income, of wealth, and and that both parties were too much um, in the pockets of the biggest corporations and special interests. And that part of what we need to do as a Democratic Party, if we want to win, is we have to mobilize this base that has sort of left us behind. And you mentioned 
perception that it was white women, some of whom were Republican, but also that there was a kind of a different wave of voters coming in. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And do you know, I haven't looked at the numbers as much as you have, do you know how much of a factor that was? Young people, women, folks who hadn't voted before, kind of coming in because they finally felt like there was some progressive messaging, some messaging that speaks to working people? Mm -hmm. I think you're, I think, You've laid out a lot of important information here and would agree with all the points you made. As regards your final question, let's start there. Um, what you know from this district uh, as one example, but also I want to emphasize from a bunch of other districts around the country. Just the other day in Missouri, there was a, a state legislative seat won by a Democrat on roughly a 35 percent swing, very similar wow. to what you saw in Wisconsin. And the guy in Missouri is a guy who won. But you know what he, he ran on? Labor rights. Yeah. He, Missouri had just become a right-to-work state, and he said, as a young man, 27 years old, again, a young candidate, he said when Missouri passed a anti-labor, right, so-called right-to-work law, he was inspired to get into politics and run. And he took a seat that Trump had won by double digits that the Republicans had held for years, preaching a gospel of labor rights and getting unions back strong. So the fact of the matter is that there's a lot of evidence around from around the country and including in some of these districts we're talking about that by taking on some of these things that, that some Democrats have been cautious to talk about in the mm-hmm. past, yep. union rights, labor rights, you know, rights on the job, protections on the job, basic, you know, the, the elements of our work life, no matter what our race, no matter what our gender, you know, background, immigration status, you know, if you're not treated well at work, you're in a bad position. Right. And and so we see cases of people winning on these messages. Uh, Christine Pellegrino winning out in New York, a, a Trump seat or a seat that had gone for Trump, very Republican seat, a teacher running again on, you know, public education, pro-union all around the country. We're seeing evidence of this. And. So I begin with that. Yeah, there's a there's a good deal of evidence that this is engaging people. It's exciting people. It is turning out a lot more young people uh, because young people tend to be much more open to uh, pro labor uh, and a diverse message that, that goes across the board, which in many ways parallels a lot of what Bernie Sanders said. Yeah. But one final thing on this, and this is important because you got to the heart of it. I, I really think one of the games that people play is the suggestion that there is a huge conflict between economic justice politics and so-called identity politics or racial justice politics or gender justice politics, whatever phrase Mm -hmm. is, you know, people try to paint this image of a division. Mm -hmm. And I want to passionately tell you that when you go out across the country and you walk into the office of one of these candidates who's running, you will see a union member sitting next to, uh, you know, a a young woman. You'll see African-Americans sitting with immigrants, sitting with white working class people. And I know there are times at which you end up with conflicts and disagreements. That can happen. But the fact of the matter is that it's terribly dangerous politically, in my view, to suggest that those divisions make it impossible for people to work together or to suggest that you have to go one way or the other. The fact of the matter is that identity politics, what we refer to identity politics, is often the entry point for people into politics. That's they, you right. Know, 
they feel discriminated against. They feel that they haven't gotten a fair break because of the color of their skin, because of their gender, because of their immigration status. That draws them into politics, but they don't stop there. They don't you know, just say that's the only thing I care about. They see, oh, yeah, we've got to get some of these economic justice issues right. And similarly with white working class people who come into politics, you know, as long as you've got strong unions and strong education, it's I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen white working class folks who start to realize that they're their friends, their buddies, the people they work with suffer discrimination, suffer you know, incredibly unfair treatment and grow to be very, very supportive of LGBTQ rights and women's rights. So I, I think that, that what I see out in America is tremendous evidence of people finding common ground. Uh, and unfortunately, too many people in Washington imagining that they can't work together. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And the way I often say it is, you know, I'm not an as an immigrant woman of color myself, I'm not an immigrant on Monday, a worker on Tuesday, a mom on Wednesday, uh, you know, uh, and something else on Thursday. I'm all of those things all of the time. And so our race affects our economic ability, our ability to make decisions mm-hmm. about our reproductive rights, about our families, and when we have a family affects our economic ability. Um, you know, if you want to have workers' rights and organized bar- uh, collective bargaining in workplaces, you're increasingly dealing with a workplace that's more and more diverse, where people are dealing with immigration issues, they're dealing with discrimination and housing issues, they're dealing with a whole host of things that you simply can't silo these things. And if we're really going to build a strong progressive movement, that ultimately we have to recognize that all of these things are part and parcel of human dignity, of economic, racial, and gender justice kind of coming together. And so it's exciting for me to see not only that some of these candidates are winning, but that we're actually having this reverse coattails effect in places like Virginia, where, you know, some of these exciting, mm-hmm. more more local candidates, state legislative candidates actually drove, I think, turnout that then went to the top of the ticket versus the other way around. So you're 100% um, right. It's it's I think it's a it's a great opportunity for us all to redefine not only, you know, what the platform is, but also what progressive means. Right. You've been at the forefront of this. But I I mean, I don't think that a fifteen dollar minimum wage is a progressive idea. I think it's it's a working families idea. It's a needed idea for people in an awful lot of America. You know, you represent Seattle. I know, uh, and we are proud. <laughs> proud to lead, but even now we ask ourselves, how far does $15 go? No, that's right. right. I mean, really, we need it a living wage. It's baseline. Yeah. $15 is baseline and, and what we work from. But there's another, what I say to people all the time is that I think that, that progressives and, and people who work within the Democratic Party and beyond it, um, you know, I always argue that they should adopt the Shirley Chisholm rule. And for the listeners who may not be familiar with Shirley Chisholm, although I'm sure most are, she was the first African-American woman elected to the U.S. Congress. She won in 1968, and it was quite an incredible breakthrough. She beat political machines and all sorts of other forces. Four years after she got elected to Congress, she decided in 1972 as an African-American woman to run for president of the United States. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And she wasn't treated respectfully. She people uh, didn't all jump to her candidacy. They left her out of some Democratic debates 
literally she had to sue to get into the debates. And yet the interesting thing about it was when all was said and done, this woman, she got to the Democratic convention. She had over 200 delegate votes at the convention. She was a, a real force in the politics. And what she did was she said, look, I'm an African-American woman who represents low income people. You know, I mean, it, it, I, no matter how you look at my candidacy, I am on the outside of power. And yet she would go to farm areas and to rural areas. Uh, she talked to white folks and African-Americans and Latinos and others. And she had one core message. And that is that we are victims of economic injustice, but they use race, gender, sexuality, and so many other things to divide us. And until we get united, so white folks in rural areas can vote for an African-American woman for president, we are not going to be able to unite sufficiently to beat these folks. Well, that and is that, a beautiful message. It's a beautiful message, and it's a beautiful way to to um, thank you for being on the podcast and to tell people that if you haven't read Shirley Chisholm's autobiography, Unbought and Unbossed, The Good Fight, it is a fantastic read. It's kind of like my Bible. I, I have read that many a time when I felt uh, a little depressed about what stands in front of us, because I'll tell you, the barriers that were in front of her that she just broke through and fought for what she believed in is is just truly inspiring. So, John Nichols, you too are truly inspiring. Thank you for everything that you do for us and to, to um, continue to just analyze the news and fire people up across the country. We need you to come back out to Seattle so we can do another town hall together. Thank you. I'm always honored to be in the same place you are. Thanks, John. You have a great day. Well, that was another wonderful, fun time, um, inspiring time to look at our country, look at the people and the ideas that are stirring the pot. And uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. And I want to end because I always like to end with a little bit of art by saying that two things. One, that I got to see Hamilton last night in Seattle and it was amazing. Um, and I got to meet the Tony Award winning director, Thomas Kale, and the actors. Um, and, you know, just to be able to see a musical about the founding of our country and to see this incredible cast of color. I mean, I think, you know, there were people from every race playing George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and um, Madison and, and, and everybody, Hamilton, obviously. And it was just phenomenal. And to have it be told through rap music, really creative, innovative lyrics, um, it was so hopeful, you know, and a couple of the, there's so many lines in the musical that I loved, but the one that everybody seems to have heard of now is um, particularly relevant for this time, which is immigrants, we get the work done. And when they said that, the entire house screamed out and started clapping. Um, and then, you know, the other one I loved was this isn't a moment, it's a movement. And I really think that is where we are in this country as well. So deeply inspiring, deeply hopeful. Um, a huge shout out to Lynn manuel Miranda, who is such a talented man, wrote um, the lyrics and the music, actually, um, and the book. So remarkable show. It's in Seattle for several more weeks, but it's also playing around the country in five different cities around the country. And then, of course, on Broadway. So if you haven't seen it yet, make sure you do and at least download the music, listen to it and read the lyrics. 
And remember to download part two of this podcast where Congresswoman Jayapal talks to Elizabeth Guzman, the delegate from Virginia who defeated an eight-term Republican incumbent.